0: Design Matters is on break and will return with new episodes in May. In the meantime, we're replaying some of the best interviews from the past 15 years. This is Elizabeth Alexander from March of 2017. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from DesignObserver.com. For 12 years now, Debbie Milman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Milman talks with poet Elizabeth Alexander about how death makes us think about what we truly value. If we're all
1: going to die, what is the meaningfulness of life? We can't just do it for the things that make our bodies feel good in a day.
0: Here's Debbie Milman.
2: In 2009, at President Barack Obama's first inauguration, Elizabeth Alexander read a poem she wrote for the occasion called Praise Song for the Day. It was a high point in her celebrated career as a poet, essayist, playwright, and academic. She has published many books of poetry and prose, she taught at Yale for many years, and now she's teaching at Columbia in New York City, where she was born. In 2012, Her husband suddenly and unexpectedly died, and her memoir, The Light of the World, is a moving portrayal of open-hearted love. She joins me today to talk about the journey of her extraordinary life and perhaps read some of her poetry. Elizabeth Alexander, welcome to Design Matters.
1: It is great to be here.
2: Elizabeth, you were born in Harlem, New York, but grew up in Washington, D.C., and I understand you had so little greenery in your early Mm -hmm. life that the first time you were placed on the grass to crawl around, you started weeping.
1: (laughs) It's true, or so my mother tells that story. And so even though I lived not even two years in Harlem before we moved to Washington, that's where my parents came from. That was our kind of family sense of self. So what it meant to be from that place, that storied place, um, and the extraordinary city of New York where I would continue to go back and forth and visit my grandparents. And what it meant to be a city person was always a point of pride that was central to who I still think of myself to be.
2: Your grandmother was born in Selma, Alabama. Your mother was a teacher of African-American women's history at George Washington University. Your father was the U.S. Secretary of the Army. And when you were 12 years old, your father ran for mayor in what was the first mayoral election held in D.C. in 1974. And you've said that politics was in the drinking water at your house. What was it like being out in the street with your dad campaigning at that time?
1: I loved it. You know, Washington, D.C., when I grew up, it was almost 80 percent African-American. It's less African-American now, but Chocolate City. That's what it was called. And it was a city with a lot of black history, a lot of black empowerment, a lot of global black ideology um, that was really very beautiful, an international city, both because of embassies and black international because of Howard, and especially it's, its dental school, its medical school, its law school. So there was a way that we understood ourselves as, you know, kind of mighty in that regard. And yet Washington, D.C., sometimes called the last colony, is a city where still there is taxation without federal representation. Amazing. So for that first mayoral election, imagine this is the first time that a city gets to say who their mayor is, that it's not a presidentially appointed person. So there were a lot of big ideas that were associated with my father's run. And even more than, I mean, I I liked being out in the street, although we were sent away at some point, my brother and I, to our grandparents, because, you know, they were sort of doing it night and day. But I loved having all of these beautiful idealistic people in our home. People would come, you know, we were a very small nuclear family. We, I, My parents are only children. I grew up without aunts, uncles, cousins. So sometimes things were a little small and closed. During the mayoral election, the doors were flung wide open. There was always a pot of chili on the stove, and people really thinking about what electoral politics could mean for folks. Um, my father did not grow up in Washington D.C. Some people said, "Oh, he's come from out of town. Who's this big fancy guy with this fancy education?" But at the end of the day, almost winning the election, it was very, very close, and the. Wards that were the poorest and blackest and further out from the center of the city were the wards who most wanted him to be mayor. So there were also interesting upendings of what political machines ought to put in place and what it means to really just listen to folks and talk to them and go somewhere where you haven't gone before and say, tell me about your life. So it was exciting.
2: Now, I understand you also studied ballet.
1: I did. So we must speak now of Adele, my mother, Adele yes. Logan Alexander, who insisted that I take ballet and every time I wanted to quit, she had this amazing way I, which I have not been able to master with my children who squandered all their talents, um, to, you know, kind of keep me going to whatever the thing was that she thought that I should be doing. And there was a moment where it clicked in and I'm so glad that she did because once I got good enough to be able to really dance. You know, you repeat and you repeat and you repeat and you practice and you do the same things over and over and over again. But eventually, you can put it together and and make something beautiful and understand it as an expressive art. Sort of like Um, life. Sort of like life, (laughs) exactly. So it was my my serious thing, ballet and then modern dance, that I did outside of school. Um, It was what I loved very, very much. And I was very good at it. But being very good at it did not mean being good enough at it to do it, you know, so to see that you can devote yourself so thoroughly to something and love something so thoroughly. But what does it mean to really be an artist? It's serious business. So just because it's fun and just because you go six days a week, that is both separate from the true talent factor and also the X factor that makes you insanely want to keep doing it above all other things.
2: Um, Do you think that discipline that you were able to cultivate as a ballet dancer is something that has impacted how you approach your writing?
1: It has impacted how I approach every single thing I do. Finding a discipline. Discipline is discipline is discipline. Um, And understanding that, you know, you you don't get the immediate payback necessarily. And also that just because you've, you know, got a little flair with a, a certain shape of poem or turn of phrase or um, effect, you have to resist defaulting to that. You have to become well-rounded in your discipline. You know, you, you, you can be a, a, a kicker and not a good jumper, but you've got to learn to be a better jumper.
2: You were educated at Sidwell Friends School, the same school that Barack Obama's daughters are now attending in Washington, D.C., Did it surprise you that Sasha Obama missed her father's farewell speech because she was studying for a test?
1: Well, I mean, let me tell you, you know, that is a very serious family. (laughs) And um, if you look at—I mean, if if we really think for a minute about what it means to come with grace and integrity as young girls through those eight years and to parent with grace and integrity— under those circumstances, it is, it is really something to behold. In your
2: 2005 book of poetry, American Sublime, you wrote a poem titled Tina Green, and I'm wondering if you could read that for us. I would be happy to read it. If you can tell us a little bit about the poem, I was wondering if it was autobiographical.
1: Yes, well, it is. So, um, and, you know, of course, when a poem is autobiographical, I think sometimes I get a little, you know, hackles up because I want to say like, and it's crafted too. Mm. Um, and there are always moments of poetic license. Um, and sometimes I almost Remember it like I wrote it rather than as it happened, which is sort of an interesting thing. Um, well, memory I, is so fluid. <laughs> yeah, and I believe poems more than any. any I believe anything, actually, really. Um, or once I've made something, I believe it more than what happened yes, because it's fixed, perhaps, maybe. Um, But um, I was at a different school at the time. Um, The story behind here, the speaker, attended the Georgetown Day School. That was my my happy school. That was a a very kind of free, wonderful, hippie school. It was a a beautiful place, and this is a story about the only black teacher I had. So it's called Tina Green. Small story, hair story, Afro-American story. Only black girl in my class, story, pre-adolescent story, black teacher story. Take your hair out, they beg on the playground, the cool girls, the straight and shiny hair girls, the girls who can run. Take your hair out, they say. It is Washington hot, we are running, I do, and it swells, snatches up at the nape, levitates, woolly universe, nodding, fleece zeppelin, run. So I do, into school, to the only black teacher I'll have until college, the only black teacher I've had to that point, the only black teacher to teach at that school full of white people who tell the truth I love. The teacher I love, whose name I love, whose hair I love, takes me in the teacher's bathroom and wordlessly fixes my hair, perfectly, wordlessly fixes my hair into three tight plaits.
2: Stunning. Thank you. The emotion in that poem is so universal and yet so personal. How do you create that kind of connectivity between the personal and the universal?
1: You know, in general, I mean, my quick answer is that art that speaks to any of us always comes from a very particular place. And then we find ourselves in it in some kind of way. You know, this is fifth grade when we're 10 years old. We do and don't experience ourselves as people with races, in raced bodies, to use the theoretical language. You know, I always, you know, knew I was a black person, but I did not think about it 24 hours a day. I don't think any of us thinks of our race 24 hours a day. You know, Zora Neale Hurston famously and beautifully said, I feel most black when I'm thrown against a stark white background. Um, So sometimes understanding us as people with races is a relative thing. So I think that everybody, um, not just people of color, um, have in them a lot of really interesting, perhaps unplumbed experiences of understanding yourself in an identity and in a racial identity.
2: You went to Boston University to get your master's degree at the urging of Adele Alexander, your mother. Yes. Can you tell us why?
1: So I was working as a journalist beforehand. I was a newspaper gal, um Washington Post, Is Washington that Post. Yeah. yep, both um before uh, the summer before I graduated from college and then the year afterwards. And it was a very very interesting job. It was fast-paced, people were smart, interesting. Um I liked being sent out into my own city to explore. I liked being sent to corners and people who I wouldn't have found on my own and having a reason um, to ask them about their lives. But I was aware that I really did want to do a different kind of writing. I learned how to master the form of what a news story looks like and how to have, you know, paragraphs towards the end that could be lopped off. But I wanted to surrender to that alchemical process that happens when you make something and don't just record something. And I could feel myself – literally, it was like a shoreline. I could feel myself like wanting to step over into embellishment, into something else. And, and I knew that that was not sustainable. And, and I, I feared I would make a mistake. And I wouldn't know I'd made a mistake. I mean, again, this is like believing the things that I write more than how they happened. So um, uh, I was talking about this, that, and the other, and it was my mother who, and it's it's fitting that we should speak of it now um, because the great uh, poet Derek Walcott has just passed away, and he was my teacher and my mentor. My mother said, um, I saw that that poet whose work you love teaches at Boston University. Why don't you just apply to that program? And I had sworn when I graduated from college that I was done with school. I wasn't going to go to school anymore. done. Dun, 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 And, you know, she, knowing me very well, she said, oh, you, you won't get in. <gasps> She's wicked. A <laughs> wicked <Little> gauntlet. <laughs> I know. You know, just yeah. and if you don't get in, then, you know, you can just stay at that job. Fine. You know? So I applied and um, I applied. I had short stories, which I'd written in college. I applied to the fiction program, but I went to study with Walcott um, and that changed everything.
2: You went to Yale University for your undergraduate degree, and I understand that you studied with John Hershey in your senior year, who you've credited with helping you find your fictive voice. But when you got to Boston University, I understand that Derek Walcott looked at your diary and
1: saw your potential as a poet. How did he see your diary? Because I showed it to him. Um, That's pretty brave. Well, I mean, again, you know, I knew I was – they had tracks, so I was admitted into the fiction track. But I knew that this great poet whose work I read not in school but just on my own was why I was there. So I went to his office and all I knew I couldn't show him stories. And I had – it was a diary. And in it I had what I called at the time – it's a phrase that Garrett Hongo uses, word clouds – They were just, you know, word stuff. And it was what I had to show. I had to show him something. And so he um, had a legal pad and he thumbed through and he said, OK, well, here's this. And then he wrote it out with line breaks. And he said, see, you're writing poems, but you don't know how to break lines. But that's what makes it a poem. He was very kind when he said that. And then he said, OK, go. Go write some poems and don't come back until you have some to show me.
2: You said that he gave you a huge gift. He took that cluster of words and he lineated it.
1: Yes. How do you think he saw that? You know, one of the things that he used to say was um, the poem will find its shape. The line will find itself. So he would say just start writing and you will see what the natural shape of this poem is, which was very mystifying to me when I first heard it, but I find it to be always absolutely true. You know, that you, and that doesn't mean you can't play around. You think it's a long-lined poem. You try it that way, but maybe you nip it back. Um, but you start to catch a, a rhythm, and you start to sort of say, okay, this is the amount. And then you say, all right, let me, in this next line, let me follow that amount. Hmm, okay. Let's see what about that.
2: So is it a negotiation?
1: It's a calibration. I mean, that process sometimes takes a very long time, but then you've got sort of a mass, and then you can put your hands in the clay.
2: I'd like to ask you to read a poem from this period. It is from your first book of poems, The Venus Hottentot, published in 1990, and the poem is called Boston. Can you tell us a little bit about it before you share it with us?
1: So that was an it was a one-year master's program, and um, Boston and Cambridge changed a lot. This was 1985. It was still coming out of the period in its history where it had such racial strife around um, busing. It was not a very well-desegregated town. Um, there were the remnants of that. And it was also a place where I had a hard time finding my community. So Boston year. My first week in Cambridge, a car full of white boys tried to run me off the road and spit through the window, open to ask directions. I was always asking directions and always driving to an Armenian market in Watertown to buy figs and string cheese, apricots, dark spices and olives from barrels, tubes of pastes with unreadable Arabic labels. I ate stuffed grape leaves and watched my lips swell in the mirror. The floors of my apartment would never come clean. Whenever I saw other colored people in bookshops or museums or cafeterias, I'd gasp, smile shyly, but they'd disappear before I spoke. What would I have said to them? Come with me. Take me home. Are you my mother? No. I sat alone in countless Chinese restaurants eating almond cookies, sipping tea with spoons and spoons of sugar. Popcorn and coffee was dinner. When I fainted from migraine in the grocery store, a Portuguese man above me mouthed, no breakfast. He gave me orange juice and chocolate bars. The color red sprang into relief singing Wagner's Valkyrie. Entire tribes gyrated and drummed in my head. I learned the samba from a Brazilian man so tiny, so festooned with glitter. I was certain that he slept inside a filigreed Fabergé egg. No one at the door. No salesmen, Mormons, meter readers, exterminators. No Harriet Tubman. No one. Red notes sounding in a gray trolley town. Thank you. Sometimes when I read that, I feel like I should say, but then it got better. (laughs) Well, let's talk about that then. (laughs) Yes, you did. (laughs) But it was a a very um, monastic year. In
2: 1991, you began teaching at the University of Chicago. And it is here where you first met Barack Obama, who was a senior lecturer at the school's law school. What was it like first meeting him?
1: At that time, I remember experiencing him as the smartest person I'd ever met. Wow. You know, just like sort of the quality of the machine, just swiftness, connectivity, putting things together. So, you know, he was a a great person, but I mean certainly outside of imagination to think of the US presidency. In
2: nineteen ninety-six, in an effort to recover from a self-described rather significant romantic misstep, you fled Chicago to go back to Yale Mm -hmm. at the invitation of a friend who had invited you to write a play, and you ultimately published a verse play called Diva Studies, which was performed at the Yale School of Drama, and your second volume of poetry, Body of Life. That was a big year for you. That year, you also won a National Endowment for the Arts Creative Writing Fellowship, and you also met somebody that was going to change your life in a in a really, really significant way. Can you talk about that?
1: Something in me said, you've got to go do this. It was an artistic challenge. Um, I had been working with this director, Leah Gardner, who, she started off um, having me do sort of staged readings of my poems, helping me, she saw voices and um, personae and characters in my poems and she was really trying to get me to see it hard. So she was working for a while at Crossroads Theater, a great, great theater that I think is no longer around in um, New Brunswick, New Jersey. And she said, okay, we're going to do some very, very simple things that are going to help you understand that these are voices. You're not going to just come up to the lectern and read. We're taking away the lectern. It's like taking away the lectern and I'm out here. And she said, yes, you are out there. And then she said, okay, You're going to read these poems from different places on the stage. So there was one poem that um, told a story about sexual abuse. And she said, for that poem, you're going to come all the way to the edge of the stage and you're going to sit down and you're going to look at someone and you're going to tell them the story. And I cannot tell you how hard this was to do. And to even just to feel like I felt like I had no clothes on when the lectern wasn't there. And then she said, "Okay, for the Venus Hottentot, the poem, which is about, you know, a woman who has made a spectacle, she had like a milk crate. She said, you're going to say it. You're going to stand on top of the milk crate and you're going to do the poem from there. Simple, simple things. But suddenly I understood that they were people. And then the final thing that she did was she said, no book, no paper, just say them. And I said, but I don't. She said, no, you know them. She said, say it. So that really was a very powerful thing to set me on the road to thinking. And Derek also always said poets should write for the stage. So it just felt like creatively this opportunity to put a play up, to really work on it, that was just too – I didn't. it didn't feel like I was going back to Yale. It felt like I would never get this opportunity again. The themes of the
2: play are very dark, much darker than a lot of your other writing.
1: Yeah, it's fu- a funny thing. I mean, it's a poem about a woman who is – is she's in a crisis in life. She's a dancer. She's middle-aged. She's in malaise. Um, and her friends have come to sort of get her up and out of her bed. And then they summon um, ancestral divas, figures, to help you know tell their stories and help her – you know find herself again but then what we realize halfway through the play is that actually she's dying and they've come to help her cross to the other side. So in the in the in the midst of this I you know I met uh, I met Fikre I met a man um and we had a coup de foudre and uh, we decided to wed in a week. We didn't do it in a week. I know you but, didn't tell anybody. Uh, didn't tell anybody because that was some craziness um but to also just surrender to that and just to say, your life is, in fact, happening. So don't fight it.
2: You did court over six weeks in the summer of 1996. Um, and at the end of your first week together, you were certain you were going to get married. How could you be so certain after
1: a week? Um Well, I'd been around the block and so had he. Um And so... You know, I think sometimes to know what's not right, um, that's a way of knowing what is resonant and right. My father had said something very, very profound to me in a not so good moment. He said, never forget that that man is not the only person who loves you, that you are loved, that love is love is love. So don't think that the romantic object is the only source you know, which was a very useful thing to to come into a relationship already as a loved person, knowing that, Yes. I think was a very, very different place to enter. I think also certainly we were both in exactly the same place of wanting to have children, even though I would not have said, I want to find a man and have children. I mean, that wasn't sort of the design. In fact, actually, I'd been thinking I was going to have a baby by myself. Uh, But then I thought, like, you're going to choose that, actually? Like, if it happens, okay. But, like, uh, really don't be so cute about that, about thinking it's so easy uh, to take care of a baby by yourself. And we both asked each other a lot of very pointed questions early on that I think were designed. He came from East Africa. Um, We didn't know each other's families. But I think designed to understand, like, do you come out of solid ground in some kind of way.
2: On August 16, 1997, you and Fikre were married in St. Barbara Greek Orthodox Church in Orange, Connecticut. And you've written how Fikre's mother once described him to you. He's a man who has drunk his water, which is the best kind of man to marry, one who is experienced in the world but who is sated, one who has had enough, who needs no more than his wife and children and work and home and yet he had come to this country in the 1970s when he was 16 years old to escape the chaos in East Africa where he had come from. How did he take that journey? How was he able to get to be this man who had drunk his water? I want to be a person who has drunk my water, Elizabeth.
1: Well, you know, I mean, sometimes I I wonder, sometimes in looking at families of siblings, and I think one was broken and one was resilient. Why? One is light and beautiful and non conflictual, and the other one makes trouble everywhere. Why? Same parents, same time. Some of it is mysterious. So, you know, he came from Eritrea. He left a, a civil war that had characterized his whole life. Um, he was a refugee. He, he was a refugee, you know, killing fields, you know, brother died in the war, everything left on foot. Uh, for Sudan, then for Italy, then for Germany, then for the United States. Um, But I don't know. You know, he he suffered, but um, his spirit was resilient. He was always a very, very creative person. So I don't know that ability to see beauty or to make from that which you live through. That seems to me to be something that helps carry you. And his family was profoundly Strong and loving, even as circumstance physically took them apart, so he was well made. Shortly
2: after you got married, you returned to Yale University. And in your book, Power and Possibility, you start an essay titled My Grandmother the following way. Imagine a black woman in 1925 who wanted to be a scholar. The first black woman received her Ph.D. in 1923. The first crop of black women Ph.D.s, Otelia Cromwell, Eva P. Dykes, Georgina Shepherd, and Anna Julia Cooper, went on to work as teachers in black high schools because discrimination prevented them from teaching at universities. So the black woman who wanted to be a scholar was simultaneously inventing herself and blazing a brand new trail. And Elizabeth, at Yale, you became the third tenured black woman on the faculty. Congratulations for blazing that trail.
1: Well, it's a little late for it to be blazable. I know. I know. I mean, uh, you know, I kind of feel like the Jackie Robinson era ought to be over, but there are still so many spaces where, uh, you know, the presence of people of color, of women, is, is remarkable.
2: In 2005, your third book of poetry, American Sublime, was one of three finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. You were selected in the first class of the Alphonse Fletcher Foundation Fellows. In 2007, you were an academic fellow at Harvard. And on January 20th, 2009, You recited your poem, Praise Song for the Day, at the presidential inauguration of our first black president, President Barack Obama. So let's talk about that a little bit. How did you find out you were chosen to do this?
1: <laughs> I mean, it was crazy after he got elected. I mean, so much was happening. Any transition period is, you know, things are happening very, very, very quickly. There had only been three poets um, ever to do this before, so wasn't sure if there was going to be a poet. So who knows, who knows, who knows. But then one morning I got a call from someone I did not know at the um, transition uh, committee. committee. (laughs) And what was kind of crazy about that was it was actually released to the press at the same moment. So literally – I mean, here again, I'm making a story up a little bit, but I mean, like my computer started rattling and shaking, and like the email started. But, but like, you, d-
2: you hadn't even accepted. So
1: it was just assumed that you were going to be yeah, made but this I mean, offer, and of course, do it, yeah. you do it. You um, do so, it. So, but it was this crazy mo- moment, and um, and then you know, just I, I was like, so okay, so what happens? What's the day? What's all happening? Who else? What? A-? And I remember when they said, um, oh, and you know, Miss Aretha Franklin. I said, Aretha Franklin. Um, because- That hat, man. That hat. You know, so it was just a very, very crazy, surreal moment. It was so extraordinary and so powerful that he was elected president in the way that he was.
2: Yes, absolutely. So
1: many people working so hard and believing in something so beautiful. It was mighty. You know, right down to the level of, you know, I mean, I can think of a million details. My children at the time, you know, seven and eight selling, you know, lemonade and doing a tag sale with their friends for the Obama campaign. I mean, people wanted this to happen. Um, So then that was December 18th, um, the aforementioned grandmother's birthday, and um, then began you know, the very, very intensive task of writing. Of writing a poem. poem in two weeks or yeah. three weeks. What is yeah, it? Yeah, just a few weeks. Because How do you it was... do that?
2: You sit down and you think, okay, well, now I'm going to write a poem at the inauguration of the first black president of the United States. Everybody in the world is going to be seeing this and I need to be well, what I, creative. You, <laughs> what
1: I told myself was you do it just like you always do it because now is not the time for a new methodology, you know, so you just do it. And, you know, I have a... Um, a sort of a plastic document bin with all of the drafts. And it's literally like now I'm showing you six inches that might, many piles of pieces of paper.
2: When did you know it was ready? Well,
1: here Fikurai comes in again. You know, he was um, he's the only person to whom I've ever shown my work regularly. And uh, he was this like, kind of mystical Ouija boardy kind of person with the, the poem. So he would um we had a ritual where first I would read it to him, and then he would read it to me, which was always very useful because you know when someone reads your poems back, you can hear things in it. And I'd mark as I heard like, ah. and then I would give it to him in his hand, and then he would take his finger. Finger, and he would land somewhere, and he'd say, "That's the problem." And he wouldn't say read out the phrase or anything. He would just like almost like it was a hot spot, like that's the problem. And and I and I you know I like to be perfect and fabulous. I'd be pissed off every time that it wasn't done. And I say, like, "Yeah," and I'd look at it. I'm be like, because he was always right in a very intuitive, intuitive way. So with this poem, I mean, I showed, read it. We did our method. 500 times. Wow! And eventually, you know, I mean, like, this will test a marriage. He's like, no, baby, no.
2: Not happening.
1: But then one day he was sitting on the steps and he gave the thumbs up, which was very funny because he's not American. You know, like an East African man giving the thumbs up, you know, (laughs) like he liked some funny, corny American things was just like the biggest thing that he could have said. And he was right. He was right. Will you read us the poem? Sure. Praise song for the day. Glad to read it now. Not only about then, hopefully a durable poem. That was what I tried to do, to write a durable poem. And uh, we're in different times, but we, you know, I feel this now. We
2: need it more than ever.
1: Praise song for the day. Each day we go about our business, walking past each other, catching each other's eyes or not, about to speak or speaking. All about us is noise, all about us is noise and bramble, thorn and din, each one of our ancestors on our tongues. Someone is stitching up a hem, darning a hole in a uniform, patching a tire, repairing the things in need of repair. Someone is trying to make music somewhere with a pair of wooden spoons on an oil drum with cello, boombox, harmonica, voice. A woman and her son wait for the bus. A farmer considers the changing sky. A teacher says, take out your pencils. Begin. We encounter each other in words, words spiny or smooth, whispered or declaimed, words to consider, reconsider. We cross dirt roads and highways that mark the will of someone and then others who said, I need to see what's on the other side. I know there's something better down the road. We need to find a place where we are safe. We walk into that which we cannot yet see. Say it plain that many have died for this day. Sing the names of the dead who brought us here, who laid the train tracks, raised the bridges, picked the cotton and the lettuce, built brick by brick the glittering edifices they would then keep clean and work inside of. Praise song for struggle, Praise song for the day. Praise song for every hand-lettered sign, the figuring it out at kitchen tables. Some live by love thy neighbor as thyself, others by first do no harm or take no more than you need. What if the mightiest word is love? Love beyond marital, filial, national. Love that casts a widening pool of light. Love with no need to preempt grievance. In today's sharp sparkle, this winter air, anything can be made, any sentence begun. On the brink, on the brim, on the cusp, praise song for walking forward in that light.
2: Thank you, Elizabeth. You're welcome. You recently wrote of your experience of reading at the inauguration in The New Yorker, And you brought your family with you, of course, but your husband insisted that your father should be sitting with you on the stage with the president, not because he had spent his life advocating for racial justice, but because he felt that people needed to look up on that stage and see his white hair. Why was that important to him?
1: Well, there were a lot of things in there. I mean, in part because, you know, my father's work, I mean, he has fought for racial justice and human equality his whole life. Uh, He was a very close advisor to President Johnson for the civil rights years, um, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, just a man of 31, 30, 31 at the time. Um, And all of the work that he's done has been um, about Knowing that people go to work every day, and what does it mean to give people more egalitarian work opportunities? Uh, he chaired the Equal Opportunity Commission. You know, the, he, and he and he's a he's a fighter. You know, he's a, he's a fighter of a generation who has kicked down doors everywhere he's gone. So it was about his life experiences and his life experiences as being emblematic of a generation of warriors, and also about understanding that this. Moment in American history was not just about the generation in the middle, but was about all of those people who would never have had the chance to be president of the United States, but helped get us to that place. Um, I think also Fikre had a very African understanding of generations, and that in his mind and in our home and in our life, there were usually always elders and middle people and babies because you need all of that, to have a a flourishing community. In April of 2012,
2: just a few days after his 50th birthday, Ficre unexpectedly and tragically passed away. In 2015, you published a stunning memoir titled The Light of the World, which was a finalist for the 2016 Pulitzer Prize. What made you decide to write a book and share your story in this way?
1: I was just scribbling things down um, in a way that really felt, I had never understood this before about my writing, but it was how I knew what I was living through. It was how I knew, I knew I was alive, but it was how I knew I was somehow sentient, fully myself. I did not know what fugue state I was in. And so I just wrote without looking at it. I was writing and writing and writing. And my very, very beloved book agent, Faith Childs, I mean, a person who's been in my life for 30 years, who I, I love, she's family to me. She said, you know, an editor has come to me to ask, she knew what happened, and she asked if you might be writing. She said, I think you're writing. And I said, I am. I said, but, I, you know, I'm not writing a thing. I'm not writing a book. Um, it felt almost mm-hmm. shameful to think about this as anything that would be a product in any way. But, you know, the next magical thing that happened was going to meet this extraordinary editor, Gretchen Young, who has also become family to me, and talking to her and seeing what she saw and imagined. And so then I signed a contract and I said, OK, but I'm probably – I'm planning to give the money back to you because I'll try, but I don't think I can do this. And then there was the question of my children – and, okay, well, so now I've written this thing, but what does it mean to my children to share this? So, we, you know, we went very rigorously through that process. But uh, at the end of the day, at the end of a very intensive, not even a one-year period, there was a, a book that is, as much as my children, it is Fikre's gift to me. Because he believed in me as an artist more than anybody ever. So the thing that I never imagined, I mean, it's unfortunate that there was the occasion to write it, but it pulled out of me something that I never would have dreamed I could have done.
2: When the book was published, it was excerpted in The New Yorker, and you stated, "'Loss is our common denominator. None of us will escape it. None of us will outrun death.'" And you go on to ask these questions. "'What do we do in the space between that is our lives? What is the quality and richness of our lives?' How do we move through struggle and let community hold us when we have been laid low? This book had to live somewhere outside of the sound of my own voice. I had to be larger than me and my individual love. Elizabeth, were you ever worried that you couldn't do that?
1: I kept doing it without reflection. So suddenly, you know, he died very suddenly and... He was, uh, you know, a great painter. So there was like all of his work to deal with, and his studio to deal with. And oh, by the way, now I'm raising these two sons. And oh, there's family and there's community. And oh, wow, something happened to me too. And I have to eat and you know get up and wash my face. You know, so all of the there was literally no time for reflection, which was kind of a, a gift in a way, you know, because I think who knows what rabbit hole of whatever I might have gone if I if I kept looking back and looking back and looking back. So the editorial process, which usually I do a little bit more as I go along, came very late in the game because I would just craft these little prose bits, you know, not prose poems, but not long prose. The chapters are very short. and And I would just make one and make another one and make another one. And I just kept going. You talk about
2: how FICRE was helpful to you in the writing of the Inauguration Poem. And in the years that the two of you were together, you wrote four books of poems, two books of essays, two edited collections, countless essays and talks. You taught hundreds of young people African-American literature, poetry, directed a poetry center, and chaired an African-American studies department. FICRE made over 800 paintings countless photographs and collages he ran two restaurants he also had two sons suddenly you're now writing and taking care of your children on your own how did you even approach the notion of having to do this alone
1: well um you know you you read something earlier about letting community hold me and i also in listening to praise song for the day, uh, I thought, I guess I've always believed this, you know, this love beyond marital, filial, national, love that casts a widening pool of light. So while I am a great believer in and practitioner of intimacy, um, uh, intimacy between two people, intimacy between lovers, between spouses, intimacy between, you know, you with your children, I also really do believe, and I came to understand this very, very fulsomely, that we cannot only belong to our romantic units— you know, I mean, and I've always been this way. Like Valentine's Day, I give like, I, I mean, I haven't for a long time, but I always give out lots and lots of Valentines. Mm-hmm. It's a day for, for love. And, but I believe this as actually ideology, you know, that, that if people who are in heterosexual nuclear families think that like it's all shiny and all about them and their shimmering perfection in their homes and that their love can stay there, they are mistaken. You have to belong to more. You have to belong to more. And then, hopefully, this is not why you do it, but then the village will have your back when you need the village, which we all will at some point.
2: Absolutely. You said that you didn't want the book to be stuck in memory as you articulated your narrative. What did that mean to you? How did that change your approach in writing a memoir?
1: Fikre was a very extraordinary person. Uh, a very beautiful person, a rare person. But I would like to think that a good writer could write a compelling portrait of anybody. So what I didn't want to do was kind of have a, you know, soft focus, rose-colored glasses. I I loved and lost. You know, I mean, I just felt it could all get flattened very easily. So what I focused on was telling stories and doing absolutely miniaturist portraits of moments of this person Um, just telling very, very precise stories so that memory itself and rose-colored glasses would not be involved in any way. I also did have a a writerly understanding, a craftly understanding, that I had to make it absolutely vivid and immediate. The the book would only work if it was like that. And that I would also have to make you care about these people. So, you know, I tell you first about the terrible thing that happens – But then I quickly tell you, this is who these people were, and this is how they fell in love, and this is a story. So that if you're going to stay with the book, it's because of the story.
2: After Ficre dies, you state, Now I know for sure the soul is an evanescent thing, and the body is its temporary container, because I saw it. I saw the body with the soul in it. I saw the body with the soul leaving, and I saw the body with the soul gone. Elizabeth what was that like for you how was each stage different
1: you know hopefully i wrote it right because it's almost hard to go back to in memory and it's hard to say any more complexly than he was there even though so what i know sadly is that um he you know he had catastrophic heart failure his heart burst his heart burst so he died before he hit the ground. I mean, he really was gone. But then, you know, that people worked on, I worked on people, you know, but so he was not pronounced dead until after he'd gone to the hospital. But what I can tell you is that even though after I, you know, that when he was in our home and sadly I was with my children, you know, but not sadly because they were with their father when he left his body. And they held him. So he was there. I All I can say is he was in there. He was really in there. And it's not like the memory of him was in there. Right. He was in there. And then later, the same body, still warm, he simply wasn't. It is as simple and I, there's no more detail except for that.
2: One of the sentences that you wrote about this experience and some of the questions you ask are this I listen differently now to people who talk about the energy on earth that never dies Mm -hmm. when we leave this house what changes when we return do memories await us is it sad and there is something profoundly sad and tragic about the fact that Ficre is not here And that while at the time you were all five foot, nine inches, all four of you, your two Mm -hmm. boys and you and your husband, Mm -hmm. you have now aged and he will always be 50.
1: And Um, the boys are humongous. (laughs) Good. (laughs) How are they doing? They are wonderful. They are absolutely wonderful. One is a freshman in college. The other is a senior in high school and he'll be joining his brother in college. And they are healthy and happy and beautiful and hilarious and full of life.
2: In the book you describe being on the verge of tears for seven months straight, all day, every day, yeah.
1: <laughs> were you ever worried that you would never stop crying? It did feel like a crying without end sometimes. But I would wait, you know, I'd wait until the kids left the house. I, I would, know. Like, you know, get them out and then just, you know, howl. But eventually it stops. You know, I mean, and sometimes it comes back, you know, I mean, that's the enormity of another human being with whom you make a life and make other human beings. And I think it's also the enormity of what it means if we're lucky to really give ourselves to somebody and to really take in someone 100 percent. So 100 percent of him is in me. So that is wonderful. But that also means that, you know, it's, it's never over, over Right, You know, and and they're still, you know, my children reach new stages of life. And I think, where is he? Um, But then I think, well, in some way, he is available to us.
2: You've moved out of New Haven and Mm -hmm. returned to New York, your birthplace. Last year, you became the one Soon Tom Mellon professor in the humanities at Columbia University. And at the end of The Light of the World, you write... Death sits in the comfortable chair in the corner of my new bedroom, smoking a cigarette. It is a he, sinuous and sleek, wearing a felt-brimmed hat. He is there when I wake in the middle of the night, sitting quietly, his smoke a visible curl in the New York light that comes in between the Venetian blind slats. At first I am startled to see him. He sits so near, is so at home. But he doesn't move towards me, he simply cohabits. And so, eventually, I return to sleep. He isn't going anywhere, but he isn't going to take me either. In the morning, the chair is empty. Elizabeth, what is your relationship to death now?
1: Hmm. Um, I haven't had those visitations for a while. You know, when someone is suddenly off the face of the earth... You, you, you. There is no scrim in between you and the. You know, any of us could die any time. We're all going to die, um, and I think we all have a lovely cushion against that in our minds that we carry around during the day, and usually that means we don't have to, you know, be in what can feel like a very terror-filled place. Um, I, I don't know how you'd survive if all the time you were in the place of realizing that death is if not imminent, imminent. It is a a surety. You know, before Fikre passed away, I was always very afraid of death. And um, his mother, who was a very wise, generous, generous woman, when she was dying and she had a, a dying that took place over time, she and I loved each other very instantly. And I found that I was able to be near to the very end. I was able to be present I was able in in a way that the children who she raised, you know, it was it was almost too much for them. And I could be the brave person. I could face it. And that gave me so much might. That helped me when we lost Fikre. And that helps me now. Um, you know, I don't like to think about it, but I feel like, well, I've done this a couple of times. So, you know. It gives you a bit of sturdiness. Elizabeth, one of the things that I love so much
2: about this book is how you are able to, just with words, create a world that soothes us with art. And we are confronting the biggest, deepest, most predictable sadnesses that happen. Mm -hmm. And... You've done this in such a graceful, generous, and soulful way. I think it's just one of the most extraordinary books I have ever read.
1: Thank you so much. I I, I realized, you know, after the fact of having written it, that I was writing both about the life we had, which was a life in art. You know, we made stuff every day. Um, we had a house that was filled with, you know, food and music and poems and paintings. That was how we lived. That was what we did. And also in the book, as in my life, that I found meaning, not just comfort, I found meaning in music and poetry, especially, you know, going other people's um, moving forward, really tools for living. Um, tools for making sense of, you know, if we're all going to die, what is the meaningfulness of life? Why do we do this?
2: Love and art.
1: Love and art. We can't just do it for the things that make our bodies feel good in a day. So um, I'm happy, I'm proud after the fact to see that some of that was chronicled in the book.
2: Elizabeth, to close out the show, I'd love for you to read a short passage from The Light of the World about art.
1: Yes, I was teaching a class, uh, a beautiful class uh, on contemporary African-American arts at the time, and i it was a big lecture class, and FICRE died, and I didn't go to class, uh, and there was one week left of classes, and I, I love to teach, and I was very, very close to this class. And so even though I didn't have to, I thought, you know, I want to, I want to go back and give my final class. And so I wrote a lecture. I don't know how, but I, I wrote a lecture because I wanted to give it to them. And after I gave the lecture, my students, every single one of them, there were like a 100 of them, they all lined up to meet me and shake my hand after class. And it was very, very beautiful because that was a community that I had built and that art had built. We had been studying together and talking together about art and music and poetry and dance all semester. We had made communion around art together. So, and so I had love shared with these people through these art objects. So I wrote this lecture, and this is how it ended. Art replaces the light that is lost when the day fades, the moment passes, the evanescent extraordinary makes its quicksilver. Art tries to capture that which we know leaves us as we move in and out of each other's lives, as we all must eventually leave this earth. Great artists know that shadow, Work always against the dying light, but always knowing that the day brings new light and that the ocean, which washes away all traces on the sand, leaves us a new canvas with each wave.
2: Elizabeth Alexander, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today, and thank you for bringing your transcendent light to the world.
1: Thank you so much for the beauty and richness of this conversation.
2: To find out more about Elizabeth Alexander and her books, go to elizabethalexander.net. This is the 12th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.